Okay, excellent. We're live. Hello, Johannes. Hi, Jacob. Welcome to Sense Space Podcast. Um, I've been wanting to have you on for quite a while. And um, I was thinking today as I was working about how I might sort of introduce you. Um, I guess I'll just start by saying I've been interested in the stuff you've been putting out um, on YouTube. For many, many months now, you run a channel called Classical Philosophy. Um, and you are kind of at the thrust of bringing exciting philosophy out of the academy and into the public domain. Um, you've got a background uh, and a lot of knowledge in classical Greek philosophy, um, in Nietzschean philosophy, in Heidegger. Um, and you've been engaging in all these super exciting conversations with um, with very unconventional philosophers. Like Guy Sengstock? Or... Yeah, Guy Sengstock, uh, Jordan Hall. Well, not Jordan Hall yet, but hopefully that'll happen soon. Um, John Pavakey. Yeah, we're actually also publishing a book. Um, I'm not even sure if I can say this yet, um, but there's something in the making, let's just say with many contributors, yes. which should be out in the summer. So you, you are the founder of the Halesian Guild, which is yes. awesome. Um, <laughs> what, what is a guild and why don't we have them anymore? So I call it, I, I, I pronounce it in the Greek, like Halkion, mm. uh, in English it would be Halcyon. Um, so guilds, I mean, there, there still are guilds. When you walk around London, you'll see the East London Traders Trades Guild, I think. And a, a, a guild is basically simply just um, a group of, of people who have similar interests or the same interests, and they protect these interests. But guilds come from, originally, are the, were the foundation of the university. So you wouldn't, so the Università di Bologna is the first university of the world. And then you had Paris and after that Oxford. Those were founded based on the work of guilds of scholars. So in the late Middle Ages, scholars grouped, teamed up, formed um, guilds mm. in order to protect uh, themselves, to support each other. And because they didn't have rooms yet, and the universitas was simply, the university was just bringing together and providing a, a physical space to the scholars and their teaching. And I had the idea for Halkion, or something called Halkion for about 10 years, which comes from very much from Nietzsche. Nietzsche has these wonderful quotes about what you know, the Halcyon bird uh, so I'm quoting from Nietzsche now, that which is really noble in a work or a human being is the moment when their sea is smooth and they have found halcyon self-sufficiency. And then uh, he also says that we halcyonians, we are devoted to light feet, wit, fire, grave, grand logic, stellar dancing, wanton intellectuality, the vibrating light of the South, the calm sea perfection. Um, this is very Nietzschean, of course. I wanted to, 10 years ago, I wanted to start a, a, basically an online magazine called Halkion. That never 
happened. What did happen was another blog I had in Germany was called Wime or Wimey. It was a very successful blog in 2014, 15, and 16. And I never got around to, but it always kept, was, I was, you could say, almost pregnant with it, with the thought of the Halcyon. And there was a time, sometime earlier this year, which now feels like a decade ago itself because it's a very different age. Sometime I thought of the word guild for some reason. I, I can't really remember why. And then I saw it popping up on Twitter sometime in February. So the, the hive mind was already talking about thinkers guilds. And yes, cultural so I thought, emergence going on there. Yes. So I thought it is, it's time. And there are all these projects now emerging. When you think of Justin Murphy and the Indie Thinkers Project, for example, uh, there's Rebel Wisdom that you're involved with. Um, there's you know, Guy Sengsuk and his Circling Institute. And this now, it, it brings together people. We had a first symposium, Andrew Tackett was there, Davoud Gosley, Sean Burke, my friend Guy Sengstock, Leszek from, from Berlin. These are people I've, I've, I've conversed with. And these are also people I've, I've put on events with. Leszek is an author, a writer from Berlin. And we put on, uh, we had, we organized a conference last year in Berlin on apocalypse, right? on the fantasy of apocalypse, which now we're living through apparently. And yeah, so, so I'm trying, so yeah. You're an immensely timely um, moment. Uh, yes, it, it was, yeah. I, there's a certain kind of wave um, of co-emerging people sort of waking up and popping up into uh, the internet and talking with each other and kind of building new yeah. conventions. And yes, uh, and exactly. And it's, it's it, ultimately what, what this is, it's already, I'm building an academy with it too. I'm teaching the second course actually this year online. And it's, it's incredible to see because I don't have that much of a following at all. Right. I mean, if you look at my Twitter following, it's around 300 people. Um, the, the channel has a thousand subscribers or so, which is nothing compared to others. And we had with the Justin Murphy Deleuze Heidegger course, we had 20 students in the seminar. And now I have for my idleness course, I think it's <clears throat> 12 students, which is, which is running right now for another five weeks. So we meet every Saturday for two hours. It's basically like a, a proper course that you could take or should be able to take at university. So, and the next course will be on Heidegger and death and being. And then on top of that, I'm, I'm interested. I've always been interested in publishing. We're publishing a book um, by, by Sean Burke, with philosophical book. I have a yearbook, which is a, a monthly publication on anything philosophical that, that fits um, the, the idea, the general idea. So yeah, it's, it's what, what's emerging is, and for me, it comes out of the realization. I, I did a PhD in philosophy at Warwick in the UK. And before that I was at King's College London. And I always wanted to end up in academia actually, because when I was in Italy as a student, that to me seemed like a life that was outside the scope of what Andrew calls total work. It would be a more, leisurely existence one that doesn't have these pressures and then little did i know that these <laughs> pressures are are even higher in academia you know you, you know the slogan right publish or perish yes you're effectively made into a, a bureaucrat of sorts <laughs> yes a, a mach yes a, a bureaucratic machine and you you can hear academics say oh i, sh I should be fine 
I've been churning out books. Right? So I, I will get the next, I will step up to the next letter. So churning out books, that sounds, so why are you, so you're not writing a book? So what, what is it, you know? And, and I didn't, so I, I actually didn't play the game. And if I, if I had been, the last two years would have been probably very miserable mm. if I'd only been playing the academic game. Um, and instead I went ahead and finished my book, which I was told to butcher up and publish as papers because papers are the currency. Um, but, you know, so I wrote a book on Heidegger on death and being, and it's, it's basically a response to the question of being and uh, to butcher that up and just you know, chop it up and say, Oh no, it's going to be papers because that's the currency that would have been fraudulent for the entire project would have been inauthentic, big word, but right. It would have been properly inauthentic. Mm. So I'm, I'm publishing it as a book with uh, Springer actually. And uh, it's, it's possible to do good academic work, even within academia. And it's possible to do, but one, I, I don't think one should play the academic game. I don't well, think one should do that. And it's, it's now we can see people are getting fired uh, in the UK and in, in the U S uh, from funny. academic positions. So yeah. I'd certainly um, like to get onto Heidegger a little bit and sort of see what we yeah. can explore. Um, yeah, it's interesting you said that like, it feels like a world away last year. It certainly feels like a world away since we met in London um, a couple of months yeah. ago. And since then I've been battling my way through um, being in time, but sort of just bringing it back to the, to the institutions I think there's a feeling by a lot of people um, that they don't want to play the game that's being set out for them. And yeah. what you described in that quite eloquent Nietzsche quote is philosophy not as a kind of um, pressured bureaucrat in a very small and increasingly shrinking office buried in books with no daylight um, but as something that's going on between philosophers and poets and artists and something which is fundamentally uh, a way of life rather than, rather than a, a profession or a means to, to income or a means to publication, uh, as you were saying. It's, so it's interesting to me that you, you've done a lot of your study outside of your, your home country um, but you do have a kind of, I mean, I've heard you hear, say before that you're named after kind of, you've got kind of classical, uh, names yes. and you, you're fluent in Greek. You can read Greek and, um, Latin. So yes. I was wondering, and keeping in mind my knowledge of contemporary German culture is very, there's many books of what I don't know. Mm. Um, was philosophy kind of something you felt was present? Do you feel like you had a relationship with that German philosophical lineage or did you feel like you were kind of bringing back or delving into something that contemporary German culture wasn't really concerned with? Uh, not, contemporary, certainly not. Uh, that, that's, uh, it's, the, the, well, the, the, the peak is, we're beyond the peak in, in, in Germany. Um, something that, so when I was nine or 10 years old, I decided to go to a classical gymnasium, a humanistic gymnasium, a humanistic high school. 
you have to choose what kind of you know you that's not a modern. gym where you lift weights just to yes exactly it's a so gymnasium is the highest form of of high school and you could go to you know scientific or modern languages where you learn something that you can actually use right but languages are of course not something you use it's something we speak and dwell in that's already a mistake and i chose at nine or ten years old i chose to go to st stefan in, in augsburg to study or learn latin and ancient greek because i wanted to understand that's what i told my mother back then i want to understand and learn the mysteries of the world and i had the suspicion i had the suspicion that when you learn the old languages because that's what i grew up with i grew up with my parents reading homer and and poetry um of of that sort and my name is johannes andreas hermes achil but i'm named after hermes and achilles he's this is not a i haven't no added pressure. that name on that's um so i have four greek names one of them is more hebrew which is uh, uh Yannis is a johannes is a greek version of, of of a hebrew name but still i that's what i what i had the suspicion would be the case and it was fulfilled but it took many years and I had a proper teacher matthias ferber who taught greek in a way that it was actually the language itself came to life <laughs> and we read when you when you study latin or greek you read most of the text in, orig in the original at 16 17 18 19 i focused on on greek for my a-levels so we read aristotle yeah, the pre-socratics plato aristotle and for example, what would what, what, it, it's Tucidides as well, but it stayed with me. And I, I remember in the um, someone said to me back then, "You'll either be a rock star or a philosopher." When I was nineteen, and I haven't I haven't become either. <laughs> but I'm working on the I'm working on the latter. And then I decided to go to to Italy to study what what you call in the UK PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics. That's where I met Ivo De Gennaro, and Ivo De Gennaro was you know, very Heideggerian uh, teacher. And that put me on the trajectory of, on which I'm, I'm still on now. I read with him Nietzsche and Heidegger and other uh, thinkers, and then I moved on to the UK. The, the reason for that is that it's, it's very difficult to get into the German academic system anyways. The university system is, is very, it's very hard to step up. It's not, there are no PhD programs, for example. It's very difficult to make contact with someone and get into the systems. That's already more bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. And there's no funding. There was another reason. And the, the, the UK has been very kind to me uh, and very, it was uh, great hospitality. And also, you know, I'm, I'm, I tend to be a bit eccentric and uh, there's a certain fable for eccentrics in, in Britain. Uh, which which suits me, and yeah, I, I've just been I've been very lucky to be honest uh, how it's how it's gone. But I've always so what I, what I will say though is if one wants to engage publicly with philosophy, one also needs to read books, right? But it's not just about going online and saying something. There is a lot of lonely studying for hours and hours and hours and reading um, and writing on your own. But then the weird thing about thought is that it wants to be communicated mm -hmm. and. I've always, not, not all of it, right? Certainly not all of it, but some of it needs to be shared and so that you get some responses and comments. And this is also the idea of teaching, of course, is just that, right? Which is now 
considered by some as a teaching load, right? That's what we call it, a teaching load. It's just something that's mm. loaded up on you. But actually, it's, it should all be one. So here's, so you, here's something. You read, you write, and then you teach, and then you teach, and then you go back to writing and reading. Yeah. Something to be kind of passed out. I wonder what your thoughts might be on this. Um, yeah. So obviously, just as you're saying that, all those lonely hours reading, I can kind of feel it. Um, and I just finished several years of study. But um, so there's a kind of interplay, like an intertextual dialogue going on through the centuries as you're reading these philosophers, there is a dialogue of sorts. But then with the classical Greeks, with Socrates and so forth, it really was an interpersonal dialogue. And that's what we're seeing now, and that's what you've been engaging in um, with Guy Sangstock and the, the kind of dialogos uh, philosophical conversation that's going on. So is it, I mean, I, I presume you're going to tell me that both have their place but what is is there a kind of relationship or is one kind of more the one cannot be without the other it, it, it couldn't be without it you can't have these dialogues without without the the background without the luggage you mm. need the luggage you need to have read um these texts in order to know what's being said because you're responding to something if not then it's actually post just postmodernism. Right, which is just um, a free-floating subject that makes up its own world. It has to be so. And what's very important to me also is that we we are responding to philosophers of our epoch. We're always responding to you know the the lineage, if you like. Mm. But there are aspects that Plato didn't see, and there there are things that Aristotle didn't see, and there. So one cannot pick and choose and say, you know, oh, I'm going to be a Stoic or I'm going to be a, a Platonist. As Hegel says in his History of Philosophy, it would be absurd to call oneself a Platonist today. When there is, there is this lineage and there are reasons because thought itself, there's a necessity to thought. There's a logical necessity to why Hegel responds to Kant the way he responds to him. And so, yes, what's emerging, if you like, now with, with conversation, you know, with these dialogues, um, which is, one could say, to a certain degree, to a, a return to hearing more than just reading, because we are hearing. Um, as Heraclitus says, that there's a logos is something that we hear first, but that still breathes out of what's already been thought. It just needs to be remembered. Mm -hmm. And I think, in terms of this remembering, that's where. Right, because it's all we're just remembering something. We're not. We're just hearkening, to quote John. We're just hearkening to what's what's already been said. Goethe says this as well. Goethe says everything that's intelligent has already been thought. It just we just have to think it again, and this thinking again, and saying again, and remembering again. That's something that I think occurs sometimes in these conversations. It's a saying again. It's a remembering, and that's than being recorded, which has its advantages, but also has its, you know, of course, also its, its inherent dangers. Anything that's recorded, um, and, you know, as you know, Plato points out in the Phaedrus that with the invention of language, we forget, we begin to forget. So with, with, the, with the advent of recording everything, I mean, we forget even more. So it's, it's, it's always a bit binary. 
it's always a bit both where you have to be very careful with these technologies yeah there's i feel there might be some sort of parallel um there with the way that we're kind of remembering what's come before um certainly uh, yeah. a lot of my kind of philosophical journey which has albeit been unconventional um yeah. and since i've been working through heidegger um it's not that you're awakening to something which was not already present it seems to be that you are kind of peeling back and unconcealing layers of of what's already present and so when you kind of have these little um awakenings either joyful or into the darkness of of reality as it is um it's it's there's more already there like you're coming back to something you're like oh i kind of knew that this was already the case yes and this is so in terms of heidegger in pure philosophical terms that's exactly what he's doing but he always he speaks of another beginning he doesn't speak of a second beginning he speaks of the first beginning that's the greeks and you are in greece right now mm -hmm. um so the the first beginning and the other beginning but the other beginning, so he doesn't speak of a second beginning. He doesn't say, Let, let's make a cut and let's just walk off. He says, the other beginning is out of and only in relationship with the first beginning. And when you speak about concealment and unconcealment, the, for, just to maybe point this out, the question of being is not something mystical. The tradition has thought of beings in terms of, in, in Latin, ens qua ens. And the qua, so ens means beings and qua means as. Hmm? So beings as beings. For example, today, beings, everything is a resource. Everything is, as he says, a standing reserve. Everything is just a resource waiting to be exploited. The human being, nature, animals, anything is just waiting to be exploited. Um, and what Heidegger says is what the tradition has forgotten, what's been concealed was that which was unconcealed the entire time, which is the qua, the as. Hmm? So, the, the, the as, beings as beings, that's the question. After the, It's a very simple question. But that's sort of, and that, that's the remembering perhaps that you mentioned that then kicks in because you're, you're, you're tapping into what Aristotle will call the, the soul of the world. Mm. You're tapping into something that's always already there but, but always already itself under threat of being forgotten. Hmm? So this is, you know, it's, it's, it's not a fact that we're here. It's not just a fact, just, you know, that you are Jacob and then I am Johannes. It's just not, not a fact, but there's a certain task that comes with being a human being. And that, that's where, you know, we have to respond to certain questions. And we also have to take, the time that this is maybe a bit banal to say this but we have to take the time to respond and what we do is, is everything's hasty and quick right even 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 now you saw it's time to build and i tried to respond and five people have read it i think it's time to think not time to build we have to start thinking again which means also to contemplate and meditate for a minute uh it feels like, I mean, there's something very interesting, a kind of connection that was made in a conversation that Guy was having recently on his channel, um, 
I forget who it was with, but it was concerning yeah. death um, and being, obviously. Um, yeah. And he made this connection between the kind of meditative practice of the headless way, if you've heard of that, um, and Heideggerian philosophy. And so the headless way is a kind of practice I've been doing through the um, Sam Harris waking up uh, meditation app. But effectively, you are kind of experientially trying to realize through paying very close attention to your experience that we experience the world as that, that which is around us. We don't experience our own faces and our own heads. We kind of are walking around and we're kind of the, the static portal through which it, it feels experience is moving. Um, and as you're reading Heidegger and he's kind of doing this constant movement and unraveling of things. But one of the key takeaways is quite simply being is being with and being with the world. And so what, what the nature of the world around us is to a certain extent constitutes what we are. And so if we're walking around and everything is characterized by busy and everything is transactional, everything is uh, resource and exchange, that is going to kind of um, sink into our sense of our own being to a certain extent. Um, and I really yeah. love that you kind of, aside from, you know, you do these excellent readings, but you've also got these little kind of observations and stuff about kind of contemporary culture and social media and architecture that a lot of that kind of resonates with me. Um, yeah. yeah. But so, so one, I hope you won't mind me saying, but I think there's a kind of theatrical or like dramatic quality that you bring. And it's not dramatic in a um, insincere way. It's like you're bringing the drama that is the truth of the, of the ideas and the reality itself in a way. It's like we can't strip it back and just talk about it in these cognitive, heady, Cartesian terms. It's like philosophy, but it's also a bit of storytelling and poetry, and there's a musicality to it, um, and so forth. And anybody who's remotely intrigued by that notion should <laughs> check out your your channel and your Renaissance, you. your new Renaissance videos. But I thought um, I thought perhaps you might read a little bit of. Uh, <laughs> Because we're always talking about, if we consider what philosophy is for most people, which is um, me up until very recently and many people that I know, yeah. um, it's dusty. It's not concerned with the, tr the depth of being and feeling <laughs> and, and, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> and so... And one great example of this for me is always this, this passage that hopefully you're going to read um, of Nietzsche's yeah. God is Dead. I, I, don't have the, I don't have the, um, the English version here, so I'm not going to read it. But, but look, I mean, one, one of the things about philosophy is it's, and this is very contemporary, it's a very, con very recent uh, development that philosophy is no longer taken seriously. And that has to do again with with 
to some degree philosophy it, itself and also with uh, with certain developments that I, I, I can't get into because it's a bit hairy but the the trouble is uh, that the the prevalent mode of being if you like the prevalent mode of understanding is the technical rational the technical epistemic way of understanding for example hegel so hegel is only valid or interesting insofar as his findings can be made operational for neuro the neurosciences and the neurosciences don't look at the, the wonder of thinking right but they look at the pure functionality of thinking oh wow there's this there's there's this uh, synapse that's collapsing when you look at a picture of someone you love. Whoa, that doesn't tell you anything about love. It just lights up a certain particle, a certain part of the brain. It shows you nothing. And Heidegger already sees this. Heidegger sees this coming. And this is one way of understanding being, by the way, right? This is one way of interpreting being is in this very mechanical functionalistic way. And that reduces our access to the world because what we're looking at is just pure functioning. Mm. But but the functioning is not it. That's not love. Hmm? But the, the, and these questions have to be, we were finite beings. They have to be asked again and again. And Heidegger sees this on the horizon, which is why he says we have to be grateful for thinking. That, that thinking is already being grateful. Thinking is thanking, he says, as a provocation, obviously. When you take it, when you take philosophy seriously, and you know, maybe not everyone can take it seriously, um, but there's, it's, there's necessity to it. Heidegger responds to the tradition. Heidegger, the first sentence of being in time, which is right here, there's like, I can read it out, it's Greek. It says, <laughs> which is from Plato. And it says, oh, oh, so apparently we, we, we thought that we knew what we mean by the word being. But we're embarrassed now because we don't. That's from the Sophist dialogue. And Heidegger says, are we even, have, have we, where are we now, two and a half thousand years later? So he responds to that. And he says, we don't yet have an understanding of what the word being means to us. And then on the first official page, the second sentence quotes another Greek term, which is gigantomachia peritesusias, which means the gigantic battle for being. The gigantic battle for being. And even you take this seriously, then there is a gigantic battle for being. That's what he's saying. Which means what? Which, which means that we always already decide and interpret being. For example, I am a thinking thing, Descartes says. That's an ontological statement. That describes you or the human being logically, but then it translates into actuality, um, in, in our being. And the same is true, for example, about someone like Sam Harris, sorry to say that, who says we're basically just our brain, right? We're just our brain. That's you, which is just Cartesianism, Cartesianism well, rehashed. Consciousness. Um, yeah, consciousness, exactly. But that, that's, you know, consciousness, that's very hairy. We'll have to spend years on consciousness because consciousness is, you know, it's important to understand. But um, may, maybe not consciousness that can be measured. You can't show consciousness. Show me consciousness. Right? Where is it? Uh, consciousness is, is the, the plane in which transcendentally speaking, objects appear to the subjects. But this, is, this happens in logic before it happens in, 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 in actuality. And he, what we are dealing with with philosophy is 
is ultimately, you know, is if you take it seriously, it lights up completely differently. Hmm? There's Khan says about Hume, for example, he's awoke, he awoke me from my dogmatic slumbers. Why? Because Hume is a dogmatic empiricist who went so far with his psychological empiricism that he couldn't even say anymore that the sun will rise the next day. So this is what thinking can do to you, right? And think of Descartes, the meditations. He pulls everything into doubt and says, I'm not even sure if these people out there are real. They might just be machines. That's one of the things he says in the meditations. That's how far methodological doubt can take you. This is what Heidegger, by the way, what you alluded to when you said being is being with others, being is being in the world. This is what Heidegger responds to, is that we're not divided, isolated subjects. And it, it, it does change one. I remember teaching uh, seminars for my supervisor, Miguel de Bistegui at Warwick. He taught the course and I taught some of the seminars. Mm. I had a student who was a PPE student as well, so economics uh, was his forte. And... He said after 10 weeks of reading Heidegger, he said, I asked him at, in the last seminar, has it changed you in any way? He said, has it changed anything for you? And he said, yes, it's, it's taken me. I, I always thought that we are just isolated consumers. That's how we are supposed to think of ourselves. Mm. But now I'm, I'm, I'm understanding that even just, even just that, that being isolated is only possible predicated on the fact that we're always ready with others, right? So isolation is secondary. Mm. And this is what Heidegger is trying to do in being in time. I mean, you don't have to even go to, to the most, you know, abstract level of what he's responding to. Reading being in time takes people out of, right? It's ecstatic. It takes one out of mm. the, the enclosed subjectivity and back into a relationship with the world. Well, if I might uh, speak to my own experience yeah. with that um yeah i don't know this would probably resonate but there's something i've been kind of conceiving of as the heideggerian turn and it's kind of that moment <laughs> at which you feel like you've arrived somewhere um and then it's turning about and suddenly it's like oh but actually there's a kind of there's a greater unfoldment here um mm -hmm. and so you're kind of constantly on the move um but if we backtrack a little bit what you were saying about um, there's a sense in which in the post-industrial world and to a, to a hyper, hyper and heightened sense in the virtual reality, um, hyper-modernity in which we exist, that we are so surrounded by things that we have made that we kind of become um, completely consumed with the realities that we have created. Um, and that has a has a way of kind of concealing what lies what lies beyond um, the last decade or the last century or into the hundreds and thousands of years and eons of history and the pre-human and the and the the period before the Earth's crust had cooled and so forth. Um, but uh, sort of the reason that I was was bringing up the passage, the Nietzsche passage from the gay yeah. science is because um, sometime later in that passage, after he proclaims um, God is dead and we have killed him, who will wipe the blood from our hands or words to that effect. Um, yeah. There's this phraseology about 
how have we swallowed the ocean and how have we kind of we've swallowed the horizon of, of being almost. And this is kind of where I feel like the heart of, of what you're getting at in relationship to, to modernity is, is this, the, the death of God. Um, we can all understand religion has declined in the last 150 years. Most people now in the West are secular and so forth, but there's a, there's something beyond that, beyond the Christian container of God, which has also been thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak, which is the horizon of being itself, the horizon of our understanding of um, the universe as, as yeah. cosmos, as you've so well kind of alluded to. The notion that there is um, a yeah, vastness in the night yeah. sky, which of course we can't see because we've made our lights too bright. Uh, but fortunately <laughs> in Athens, it's, it's dim enough that I'm starting to, to yeah, this myself in the cosmos again. Yeah. Um, Even in London, you can now see the stars mm. sometimes. Right? And, and there's a stillness now. Mm. I mean, what, what, you're, what, what you're alluding to is, is exactly it. Hmm? Is, is the way I, yeah. So the death of God, what does he actually mean? Yada, yada. You know, you, you can write papers after papers after papers. W what he means is, as he basically said, is this break, this utter washing away of an ultimate horizon that could grant meaning. What the reasons for those are is you, one can find in, in modernity itself. It's the explosion of intelligence that leads to um, to this, to this destruction of this ultimate horizon. Laplace, there's a very good book by Alexander Quire. I think the title is From the Closed World, which is Cosmos, to the Infinite Universe. And in this book, Quire ends it on an anecdote by, on, 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 on Laplace, who said to, who presented his model of the universe, of the planetary system, the solar system, sorry, to Napoleon. And Napoleon asked, what about God? And Laplace said, I no longer need this hypothesis. And don't forget, for, for Newton, God was still a necessary hypothesis. Newton actually quoted St. Paul. He was a Polinian. Right? God is in whom we roam and have our being. And the same is true even still for Descartes. For Descartes, there's nothing without God. There's, not even, there's no guarantee of the world. And for all of them, God was still a necessary hypothesis, if even just that. And Heidegger at some point says, right, um, the God here is a causa sui, the self-causing cause, but this is no longer a God, this God of metaphysics that one can pray, sing, and dance to. And he has this famous remark about only your God can save us now, um, which I think of as saying it's only when we become mortals again, which means that we die, to quote Hölderlin, mortals die their death in life, which means to actually live up to mortal finitude. That's when perhaps the divine could make a comeback. I think that's what Heidegger meant in this Spiegel interview, which is very often quoted. And here with, with Nietzsche, and I have the, the, the German passage, I'm a bit hesitating to, to read it because um, I couldn't translate it probably just that, that quickly. But yes, you know, what, well, this this washing away it, it's not um it's not 
a triumphant subjectivity that yells out uh, in, 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 in joy that it's been able to kill or capable of killing God. It's actually a cry in agony. Mm. Uh, the the madman, the, the, the human being who's a bit, a bit displaced, dislodged, is actually uh, bemoaning that and, and ask. And, but also at the same time, of course, says, you know, we're not ready to become gods yet. And then you get all the, the stuff about the, the questions about the Übermensch. But yes, what's been breaking away is this, is that we are held by something. We're no longer, there's, there's nothing that holds us. And, but, the, but this is the, and this is why it gets very mystical sometimes, right? Um, the mystical, or the, by the way, in the, the, the paragraph right after the death of God in Nietzsche is entitled Mystische Erklärungen, Mystical or Mythical Explanations. And he says they're not even superficial. Myth will make, is, is something where the world is just explained by you know, the, the thunderstorm, that's Zeus. The move to logos, the move to philosophy, is when no when these explanations no longer hold, and we have to find a hold in the midst of beings. And right now, of course, this this giving a stance to take is provided by, to some degree, by what Heidegger calls Gestell, which is difficult to translate, technology and framing, perhaps techniques. Um, but we are. Um, and then there's a certain meaning to that too, but the well, I think what we're living through, what people call you know the meaning crisis of nihilism, is I think connect, of course, related to the death of God, but also to our disconnect from deep history. Is that, do you think that makes sense? Because we're not remembering. How deep are we talking? Uh, d- deep in the well, I don't know. Uh, in in the sense that. Um, you know, when, when we say history, we think of it as something of the past. But, but history, perhaps in a Heideggerian sense, is something that's coming towards us. We are, we are given tasks that we are, there's an inherent relationship to those who have come before us uh, that we have to have a responsibility for. But as we're isolated subjects, consumers, etc., kind of, you know, encapsulated and... Uh, not really with, with, yeah. with, because what we're, yeah, but yes, but we're in the, I mean, literally we're, look, how, may, maybe this is, maybe this is a, a gateway. When you read the, read the allegory of the cave, if anything, read the cave. And it might be, when I read it for the first time in the 16 or 17, it just struck me as I thought, this is it. This is our, this is our epoch. This is the time we're living through. What Plato is describing two and a half thousand years ago is our time, is that we are dealing with shadows on screens that we're not even recognizing as shadows. This is, by the way, the danger of all this online philosophy stuff. Um, and the, the, but so when you, then I'm not saying that the cave is you know, some interesting metaphor for us today. What I'm saying is the cave is a nece- we are living through a necessary consequence of the cave. The mm. cave is real. We are in the cave. As I said to you, I think, you know, you're, you have your, when we met in London, I said, when you have your iPhone, you have your cave in your pocket. Um, <laughs> but that's, I'm not trying to, what we always, what, what we tend to do in modernity, or in our epoch, especially, not, not modernity is a long period, but what we tend to do in contemporary society 
is to take everything metaphorically and nothing literally. When Hegel speaks of the absolute, he means the absolute and he sees the absolute. When Plato speaks of the idea of the good, he sees the idea of the good. That that's just there's no discussion, right? That that's the philosophers see. And Heidegger is actually a philosopher already who has to suffer through this um, this incapacity of others to accept that there's something like a philosopher sees something. And then he says in a letter once to a student, it's very weird that Plato does that you know, Plato didn't have to justify to his fellow men. Um, that he speaks of idea and idea, which we translate as ideas and forms. But I have to justify being. That's so strange. The oldest question of, of philosophy now has to be justified. It's, I think when we begin to take philosophy literally, that's when it begins to shine forth again as something that speaks to, uh, that tries to articulate truth. I'm not saying that any one philosopher has found truth Absolutely, no. But it speaks a certain truth out of a certain um, necessity. And when you take Nietzsche here literally, then we are now in the horizon of the infinite or the endless, where we are stripped from meaning, precisely because we have killed God. And we are, we are suffering through these shock waves. That's what I mean by deep history, right? We haven't chosen that history. Um, that God has disappeared. Yeah, and I think we might, um, once we begin to, I mean, one of the reasons I kind of pick upon Nietzsche is that I very much take the view of the period of history since the mid-19th century and the present um, relatively short in the longer scheme of things. Um, but we can consider the raging totalitarian battles of of communism and fascism and many of the occurrences of the 20th century to be a kind of a reverberation or playing out of the necessary um, outcomes of this and to a large extent we are still in in continuity with um, that moment and in a working out of it uh, we have erected new idols in glistening glass towers across <laughs> our cities um, and we've created immense and captivating distractions in our pockets which uh, have a certain awful infinity to their scrolling wheels and every video queues up another video and um, you really feel like you're on a on a fast track to becoming some sort of um, machine strapped up to yeah. an IV drip giving you Doritos or something. And, uh... <laughs> yes, that, that, but, but the, the strangest thought, though, and this is something everyone has to think through for themselves, is that leaving the, to leave the cave, one has to enter the cave even deeper. That's right. We're looking for the I exit. I haven't heard that one before. Huh? I haven't heard that one before. Now, to leave the cave, you have to re-enter the cave. The truly, to become free, one has to enter the cave again with the light of the sun carried with you, mindful, however, of the concealments and shadows in the cave. There is no freedom outside the cave. That's the, 
maybe unfortunate situation. But this is also, I think, why Heidegger speaks of, in German, verwinden, der Technik, uh, which would be, so it would be, I think it would be not quite correct to translate this as overcoming technology, but to turn over, hmm? to overturn techniques, gestellt, which means to, not to, you know, brush it all aside and say, I'm going to, uh, going to walk off and live in the mountains. Not even Zarathustra does this. Right? Zarathustra always comes back to the city. There's always an upgoing and a downgoing and an upgoing yes. and a downgoing. Uh, yes. Exactly. And exactly. See, it's, it's actually in, in, and technically, we have to talk about this maybe some other time, but, you know, Gestelle and framing does not have much, that much to do actually with technological gadgets. Uh, th those are necessary consequences of a certain way of understanding being. But what we're, I think what, what these you know, gadgets allow us to do is to bypass certain shadow makers, shall we say, and you can begin to throw your own shadows on your own wall, which perhaps might, those shadows perhaps might inspire someone or some, some, some people to get up and make this very painful journey, as Plato describes it, out, outside the cave in order to return. And the cave is, you know, when you read it, you walk out, Plato says, when you're outside, you have to spend the night. You have to spend the night in darkness because only then will you be able to see the light is too bright. So again, you have this interplay of light and dark. But then you have to go back down out of compassion as Plato says, out of compassion for the others that are still down there. That, that's, that's what, not pity, but compassion, that's very important, is that this is how Plato describes it. Compassion, a feeling with, because what would one do? One would just be outside, on, on, you would be on your own. It, it's really about going back down, and even if, and he's very clear, you know, even when facing death, one has to speak the truth, which is now, of course, as you know, Socrates faced death um, for speaking truth to power. And the, I think what, what all of this you know, current epoch allows some people to do is to bypass certain mechanisms, certain gatekeepers, in order to, so that, so that certain things are overturned, right? The, the, you, you, you can take people out of, uh, once you're taken out of it, you, you can you just simply provide, give lectures, for example, or make podcasts or provide a certain way of writing that takes other people out of something. Not 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 to say that someone's more enlightened than anyone else, no. Um, but to because what I'm seeing happening, maybe I should say this more clearly. What I what I what I do think is happening is that subjectivity, which is a very peculiar philosophical term of the, of the modern e epoch, right? which means that we, you can understand it as being enclosed and divided from the world, which is what, which begins with Descartes, which then Kant tries to overcome and Hegel tries to overcome and Heidegger to some degree achieves the overcoming off to some degree with Dasein, which is, which is always being in the world, which to some degree even Kant already says, but what I'm seeing happening is that the subject, which is self-certain and its own ground, the subject, which then is the human being, 
that's pushing towards its utmost limit. It's now at an utmost maximum, and it has been there for years. It's just been, you know, and that's where you get the fantasies of, of the apocalypse from, is that perhaps this, this self-certain ground is beginning to slip and fade away. So what Nietzsche is describing, which you brought up, right, that this ultimate horizon is, is breaking away, and Nietzsche says we're not even ready to be gods yet, is that now, because as Descartes says, without God, the subject does not get out into its world. It, it's trapped in its own uh, phantasma. And that's now slipping away. That self-certain ground that the subject was for itself, that's ending. And I think that's why it's, um, it's really imperative to begin to read these texts and, for example, Heidegger, but also the ancient Greeks, to see and to begin to see other ways of, of being. Yes, yes. Um, and just to pull a few, a few threads together, I know you've got to go in a, in a few minutes. Um, Take your time. You can see a kind of cultural bubbling up of these, these themes in a way um, outside, of, outside of philosophy and the popular culture as, as you're talking about the cave. Uh, obviously for me, The Matrix is such a timely film to come out. I think it was 1999 or something. And still yeah. today is such a beautiful sort of um, visual representation of, of the waking up out of, out of the, the absorption in techne. Um, and then conversely, we have the zombie apocalypse, as you say, the fascination with, with the zombies, which seems to, on some level, speak to, to a subconscious fear about our own condition of, of utter clone-like monotony. Um, yeah. One thing that I'm feeling very present through the conversation I'm so thankful for is that we have not been sidelines talking about coronavirus for the whole uh, time. Um, But one of the things that you've articulated quite well um, with your channel is that that death um, and the Mm re-revealing of death as something which has always been present but is now a felt cause of presence and anxiety and is actually causing people to to come into confrontation with aspects of themselves that they repressed and all kinds of things that that's happening right now and that's very much entangled with the sense of opportunity as well or perhaps opportunity is the wrong word um the zeit Geist or the kairos or the an an opening yes there's a liminality things have been thrown up in the air and there's a potentiality to go in a very awful direction and uh altogether different and a direction that we haven't yet conceived of and so that's that's where this this philosophical philia sophia this this awakening and arising and gathering of, of, of individuals, not all of whom have tweed jackets and have, have the academic background. Many, you know, it's sort of wisdom lovers coming from all corners and converging and conversing. Um, and who knows, who knows where it's going to go, but it certainly feels for me personally, that 
um, this engagement with philosophy um, that I'm experiencing uh, and is not separate from, from practice and not separate from becoming more involved in my relationships and my friendships and um, every aspect of life really is something that's bringing being more into presence. And all of a sudden, there's less of a feeling of, oh God, I'm going to get, you know, there's so many people getting trapped in jobs they don't want to do, striving forwards towards futures that they don't want to, to have and always seem to be in, in avoidance of something that's not quite present. Um, and so I, I don't know where I'm going with that riff, but hopefully that, that what I'm really trying to do here is kind of bring, bring my sense of why what you're doing is so important. And, um, and you, I will link the, uh, your reading yeah. of the death of God in the, in the show notes for people as well, because yeah. that's really yeah. a, a lovely reading. You know, just to bring this back to Zion and tight, being in time, as Heidegger says here, and also in a short text, which is you know, good to read, maybe to start with Heidegger's, what is metaphysics? 1929. Heidegger says, it's in angst, anxiety, as it's often translated, that the world begins to disclose itself. So maybe I'll just leave it at that. Right? There is no world without being towards death. There is no proper full horizon of meaning without angst. And the, if you like, the, the uncanny wheel work of which Nietzsche speaks requires something else. It requires boredom as its fuel, our boredom and our distraction from this boredom. Even though boredom could disclose as a fundamental mood something rather crucial about us and the, the stillness that's now present everywhere has for example just a personal note maybe to end that's on a very less abstract more concrete i'm reading differently i have a much better reading now because the world is quiet and slower i can hear birds outside my window as you're saying this yeah, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, this, but the, that, that's part of the stillness of the world, to hear birds sing again. And, uh, and not, I'm, I'm not hearing airplanes anymore. There's five airports in London. And you, you know, you live east, you have, yeah. you have Stansted and Gatwick and all of them arriving, <laughs> arriving into these airports. And yes, it's, it's it, you know, it's very difficult to, 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 to speak prophetically and say this will come back and this will be like this. So in the, the coming Renaissance series, what I'm trying to do is simply to, well, to, re, to remind us, right? to remind us of what's already there. And this, uh, perhaps this is why it's speaking to people. It's because it's, it's just remembering what's always been and 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 delivering this over to to this to this century and you mentioned we haven't talked about the virus maybe very briefly aside from its biological effectivity or what what it is it is also a virus in a different sense it's a virus in the sense that it's rebooting us right weirdly enough it's it's rewriting recoding 
speak with Deleuze and with Deleuze you could say it's deterritorializing us and re-territorializing and there will certainly be even more than before people will are looking for for answers or even just the right questions right it always begins with the right question which which you can't ask if you're trapped in certainly you know a certain streamlined existence that's already lived almost for you of the, the career pathway etc and <laughs> all this other nonsense There's and perhaps this is a period so yeah there's a poet, uh, David White, that I've taken a real liking to recently, an Irish poet, and he does these contemplative poems. Um, and one I was listening to the other day, he says something like, um, there's a kind of, there's a, a window, a doorway to, to being, which very often we've locked inside of ourselves, and, and it lies behind the question which we most do not want to ask. Um, which plays into angst and anxiety. Yes. What happens when we lean into the profound discomfort of being as, as it is right now? Uh, in a way, thankfully, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people because it's opening the question. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they haven't yeah. had yeah. to ask and they've been very successfully avoiding um and i've yes but it but everything it. yes but yeah. everything just to it, it just everything comes back to haunt us it, that's what jung says with his notion of shadows interesting that he speaks of shadows right when you think of the cave um you avoid death it comes back to haunt you um a, a culture that avoids or even bans death it's almost banned, right? It, it, that comes back uh, in apocalyptic, quasi-apocalyptic um, uh, um, understandings of history and uh, a, a culture that wants, that, that denies finitude and limitation will inevitably destroy the earth. Uh, that's it's it's that's it's that simple it's almost that banal to it's almost banal to say because if you don't if we don't appreciate natural limitations even just to ourselves then we think that we can just have just in time delivery of anything and produce as much energy at infinitum and if you know and if if this planet fails us we'll, we'll just go to earth uh, to Mars, sorry, we'll leave the Earth and go to Mars, as Elon Musk says. By the way, this is where you can see that the what Heidegger calls the functionaries of technology is that those who seem to be, you know, richer materially are not that much. I mean, that that's a very desperate statement. That's very desperate to say that we all just go to Mars. I would never want to go to Mars. For what? This is it. This this finite landscape that I can see with my myopic eyes. That's it. That's all I know. To go to Mars would be nihilism at its utmost. We would no longer be human. Um, but as you see, it's already that we're so desperate now um, and already kind of know that we've lost the game here, perhaps. But we say, let's just go to Mars and, and build a, a perfect civilization up there uh, without limitations, of course. Um, so, yeah. That, that, that's literally, I mean, this is if you think back to the madman. That's this horizon wiped away.
that's it that's where you can see it you can see it in some movies for example 2001 a space odyssey that was portrayed too um because there's no longer a horizon at mars show me meaning on mars right what would be the meaning of that um so yeah how far out into the universe can we go to escape our own deaths? Yes, <laughs> exactly. I mean, how far? If we're leaving and every, uh, we're leaving listeners with anything, it's 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 a prayer to to make the turn from uh, from apathetic avoidance of the horror of being to, <laughs> to a kind of anxious, tentative inquiring leaning into into yeah into what and, lies there and you know this is why this book is called die fröhliche wissenschaft the gay science or as it's now translated the joyful science which is not optimism not pessimism but joy right the return of joy nietzsche says in, in another passage in the book on leisure and idleness that we are suspicious of all genuine joy and have no ceremony no no time for detour in conversation no uh, everything has to be clear-cut and direct and everyone's already trying to gain from the other right and 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 and, and it's all about competition nietzsche already says this is 150 years ago and we've now lived through a period of intense competition publish or perish um <laughs> Which, which still bearing which, this this PTSD of academia? No, no, I'm, I'm not. No, I'm not traumatized. <laughs> but um, I, 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 I just uh, never wanted to do it, precisely because you, you know you you actually perish when you publish too much. That's it's just an idiotic slogan. Uh, and there's this there's ways to exit the cave, right? There are ways to exit certain caves and you enter new caves, but the uh this lack of joy hmm, and the over over competitive way of being with with others that might that that's my very humble hope that that hopefully ends in this decade because it's it's not serving anything or anyone it it doesn't create more value for all uh, it doesn't create more meaning for all. Um, it it just turns everyone against everyone um, for for no reason. That it just you know, increases nihilism, if you like. Johannes, thank you. I've enjoyed this. I'm feeling Thanks a lot much. of um, clarity, and I feel like just beginning to explore all the things that have been percolating as i've been watching your channel and as you talk about uh, idleness with dignity and the <laughs> monolith of total work and all of that that will have to be uh, bookmarked for another day but um until then it's been great having you and uh if there's any links or stuff you want i can put that into the sure into the information yeah. but classical philosophy is your channel yeah and everyone can check it out. Yeah, that should that should be enough. <laughs> Just the channel. Thank you very much, Jacob, for this, taking the time. And we'll talk about idleness perhaps some other time.
And the skole, the old Greek word, skole. Mm. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jacob. Thank mm-hmm. you.